But this week we're going to be continuing on our series of God's grand design, looking at God's grand design for wives. We examined husbands last week. This week we are addressing wives. Same piece of scripture then, Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we gather around your word afresh today, we're aware that these are your God-breathed words. Lord, would we bow to you then today as your sons and daughters? Would we bow our knee to you as our Father and listen carefully? Lord, we want your guidance. We want to understand your plan, your pattern for us. So help us by your grace, Lord. Amen. And when it comes to marriage, there is without any doubt at all no shortage of self-help books out on the market when it relates to how to improve your marriage. There's plenty of books. Plenty of books on date nights, plenty of books on love languages, plenty of books on getaways, self-help, helpful practices. There are plenty of books on everything to do with marriage and there is without doubt no lack of appetite to buy them and read them and sell them and take them out to all our friends and apply them. And yet one of my greatest concerns is that for so many of them, albeit Christian in nature, there is sadly so often a serious insufficiency when it comes to doctrine. When it comes to understanding what God's word actually has to say about marriage and its purpose and its pattern and in its practice for the glory of God. And that deeply concerns me as Christians because quite frankly, without doubt, doctrine matters. What this Bible has to say about any issue is the most important thing about that issue. And that's doctrine. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, The conviction that Christian doctrine matters is one of the most important growth points of the Christian life. What a great statement. 
that conviction, that realization that this is God's word and God breathed, and I need to listen to this more than anything else, that marks, that moment is one of the most biggest milestones in any Christian's life as they realize, my, this is what I need to live by. Bruce Milne says it this way. He says, why then is the study of doctrine so vital? Well, firstly, because as a matter of plain fact, every Christian is a theologian. Once we have grasped this, our duty is to become the best theologians we can be for the glory of God. As our understanding of God and his ways are clarified and deepened through studying the book he has given us for that purpose, the Bible. Secondly, because getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. If we are to know who God is, who we are, and what God wants us to do, we need to study Scripture. That means it's teaching as a whole, and that means doctrine. This holds true for every single area of the Christian life. Listen. For at every point, Right living begins with right thinking. At every point, right living begins with right thinking. And so it does. All Scripture, Paul tells us, all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is all God breathed. And it is written and discussed here and written from back to front in a way that will help to see what right thinking is on any issue. Right thinking that then develops into right living. And so doctrine is vitally important because doctrine is all about understanding what does God say as our creator about that issue. Doctrine matters. It matters because right living begins with right thinking. This is true for all of life. It's true for all and every aspect of life that right living begins with right thinking. And accordingly then, it's true for biblical manhood and womanhood and indeed all of marriage as well. Doctrine matters. What the Bible says is the most important thing and the thing that actually in and of itself will indeed set us free because the truth always sets us free and that's why over the last few weeks we've been spending a lot of time in genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and indeed ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33 because understanding that right living comes from right thinking we have to examine what the bible then has to say and when you do it you see when you spend time in those scriptures you see so many right thinking truths don't you so genesis 1 As I'm sure we're well aware by now, we see that men and women are made equal in their value and worth and dignity before the Lord. We see how the Trinity came together in consultation with one another. And he made men, male and female, he made them. And together, he made them equal in value and worth and dignity before the Lord, both with equal ability to reflect the glory of God back to him. But then in Genesis 2, we very quickly see that although we're equal in value and worth and dignity, men and women are made distinct and different in their roles. Different parts to play in creation. 
Different parts to play within marriage in particular. And as the Lord God created this and made this, he sat back and he saw it in the differences and said, and that is good. He loved it. He knew this is the way it was always meant to be. But then comes Genesis 3. And we see the fall of mankind. We see sin enter into the world. And through that sin, we see pain coming into the world and hardship. For women, there would be pain in childbirth. For men, there would be pain in his work. And for both man and woman, there would be pain between them and the Lord. They'd be sent from the garden no longer to be able to spend time with God in that wonderful, intimate way. And more even than that, there would be pain between each other. The woman as wife would want to rule over her husband, and the man as husband would want to dominate over the wife. And if he can't, he will abdicate. And so the battle of the sexes begins, all the way back at the start of creation in Genesis 3. Pain and difficulty comes into our cross-gender relationships. But then come the Gospels, and we see the arrival of the serpent crusher, The one who's going to make it possible for us to be forgiven and redeemed and adopted, knowing that heaven is our home. The one who is going to come and make it possible for us as a growing set of Adam and Eve to come back into the garden, to spend time with God again, to be able to commune with Him, where there be no more pain between us and Him. And that serpent crusher was Jesus. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And he made it clear that through him, we could now spend time with God again as our Father. And in the book of Ephesians then, chapters 1 through 3, we see the spiritual blessings that we now have in Christ. As he says, listen, remember who you were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Sovereign grace, this is who you were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, uninterested in the Lord, running away from him, freely following the the Satan who leads, in effect, the world, the prince of the power of the air. But now in Christ, you've been made different. Now in Christ, he's breathed life into you. Now in Christ, you've been forgiven of your sin. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. You've been redeemed and reconciled back to God. You can have a relationship with him. Not just a distant one, but in a family as he adopts you. He's given you the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And he has assured you that heaven is going to be your home, not because of you, but because of what he has achieved in your place on the cross in your place. And so Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, Therefore, I urge you then to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. In light of this great salvation, I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. It's different for you now. Your body has been bought with a price. You're Jesus Christ. You're citizens of heaven. You're just sojourners here. So he tells us in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 what that means. What that means for the way we work. What that means for the way we pray. What that means for the way we speak. And what that means for our relationships. And in Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33, he addresses wives and husbands. And doing so, he takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. That's why he quotes it. Verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's taking us back, explaining that this was always the way it was meant to be. Genesis 1 and 2. But the fall came and it all messed up. But now in Christ, 
I want to take you back to the way it was always meant to be prior to sin. And he tells us about this picture of marriage that a man will leave his father or mother and be joined to his wife. And he tells us in verse 32, he unpacks it even more when he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He discloses a profound mystery that all the way through the Old Testament they didn't fully understand. Namely, that marriage is a gift from God as a moving picture and parable of the relationship between Christ and the church. It's a picture for the glory of the Lord displayed as man and woman commit to one another in holy matrimony. It's a picture and a moving picture ongoingly of Christ's relationship with the church and vice versa. And then all the way through that text then, he continues to pull back the curtain on Genesis 1 and 2, making it clear that yes, we are equal in value and worth and dignity, but different in roles. We have two different parts to play. So husbands, well, that part is headship. Men are called in the context of their marriages to be the heads and spiritual leaders of their homes. A God-given responsibility that is no way an opportunity to control or dominate. No, a God-given opportunity and responsibility to love their wives, to serve them, to lead them, care for them and to protect them as Christ, verse 25, has done the church, his bride. That's what spiritual headship is. Men that stand next to their wife having said, I do, that are then willing to say, I do. And so what that means is I now lay my life down for you to serve you and lead you, and protect you, and love you in any way I can, so that this home may succeed, and so that you, as my dear bride, may grow and fall in love with Jesus more and more and more. That's what headship is. And then for the wives, the clear role, as outlined in Genesis 1 and 2, and then again here in Ephesians 5, is the role of helper. Helpers. That's why Eve was made for Adam, as his helper. And it is that role that continues here in Ephesians 5. A role in which she is to use all of her God-given gifts and abilities and strengths and intelligence to help her husband in any way that she can as he seeks to lead their home for the glory of God. It's what it means to be a helper. It means to have gifts and abilities and strengths and intelligence and stand next to him for the glory of God seeking to help him as he seeks to lead the home for the glory of the Lord. You know, sadly, in our culture, that role of helper has been so denigrated and classed as so inferior that we hear it and there's something in us that straight away goes, ooh. But in the Old Testament, God is referred to many, many times as the easer which means the helper of Israel. God himself said, yeah, this is what I am. I'm the helper of Israel. I'm going to use my gifts and abilities and strength and wisdom, everything I've got to help my people. This is no surprise then, as part of the Godhead, he made Eve as the helper to Adam to reflect who he is, to reflect his character, to reflect his glory. 
See, my friends, just John Piper says, differential roles were corrupted and not created by the fall. They were created by God. He looked on in Genesis 2 with that clear role of head and helper, two distinct different roles, complementary roles, and said, it is good. Genesis 3 came and trouble came in. But now through Christ, he's taking us all the way back and saying, listen, let me show you and help you demonstrate what it always meant for the glory of the Lord as you display a picture of Christ and the church. And so when it comes to the God's grand design for husbands, you have a clear role of headship. And when it comes to God's grand design for wives, you have a clear role of helper. And the question then I want to linger around then today relates to the disposition in which we see this role of helper is to be carried out. It is not very culturally embraced. Times that by 183 in Australia across all of life. Look with me. Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 24. This is the disposition of wives. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I think it is plainly obvious and Remarkably clear then the disposition that all wives are meant to have towards their husbands, the disposition of submission. And if you have any other take on that scripture, I'd love to hear it, but I don't know what planet you're on. Because clearly it is there again and again and again. And he doesn't just say it in this book, he says it in three or four different letters. Women are to submit to their husbands as the head of of the home. It doesn't take long to discern that. It doesn't take long to realize that disposition. But what it also doesn't take long to realize, I think, is that this word and disposition in our culture today and so often our churches today is so often misunderstood and misrepresented. Is it not? How many of us have been to weddings when the bride says at this point, and I love and honor you and I will submit to you all my life. And at that point... As the pastor, I look at the person and I look at the people. And I remember one time seeing this woman's eyebrows go so high, I thought they were going to fall off the top of her head. You know, you just, you could see people nudging each other. And just, Did she just say, she, she just said that she will submit to him. Oh, poor girl. She must be one of those religious types. What has she just agreed with? This isn't Victorian Britain. You know, you can watch people. I, you know, everybody's quiet. They're loving. You get to that bit and they're like, oh my goodness, what is that? There is a reaction to it immediately. We've all experienced it, have we not? And I think it's because there is great misunderstanding and misrepresentation about what biblical submission actually is. So here's the question I want us to linger on then today. The question I want us to linger on is what then is this biblical submission? What is it that Paul is talking about here? Now listen, if you are a husband... This is not the week to get your own back on your wife, okay? This is the week to listen carefully so you can learn how to be the head of your home and understand the way it's to operate. But also it's the week to listen intently so that you can know how to encourage her in a role. And if you're a single, this is a time to listen up. 
Some of you single ladies, God willing, you'll be married one day for many of you. On that day when you say, I do, that's not the moment where you want to be learning what this is. You want to be learning now, what would this mean? And even if it isn't God's will for you to get married, if he's going to have you enjoying the blessing of singleness and the gift of singleness for the rest of your life, then for the glory of the Lord, there are going to be others around you that are married that you need to encourage and fan into flame for the glory of God, the role they're to play. And if you are a wife, then this is God's clear, direct word to you. So I want to encourage you to pay careful attention to his words. So four questions that I'm going to answer in terms of what then is biblical submission. We'll go quick. Number one, so whose idea was this submission anyway? I thought it'd be fun to at least start there because I don't want there to be any conspiracy theory out there that this is just a sovereign grace thing, that this is a group of male chauvinists that have got together at some point and come with the idea of submission. I mean, who even wrote the ESV edition anyway? Was that just our husbands? I don't want there to be any concerning theory as to where this came from. And I want us to see then when it comes to whose idea was this anyway, I want us to understand that submission was God's idea. It was designed and created by God himself. And submission as a disposition, I think it should be no surprise to us that God created it in male and female because submission is displayed in God himself. In the very Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is submission displayed. And that's so important to see. Dr. Wayne Grudem then says it this way. He says, The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or abilities. It is just there. The relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It is a privilege. It is something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is His glory, the glory of the Son, as He relates to his father. So it is. The idea of headship and submission never began. It is not based on gifts or abilities. It was in the Godhead from the start. I don't think God the Father looked on and said, oh, I like you, Holy Spirit, but you're just not as gifted as me. Um, you're just not quite as, you know, you, you're nice, I like you, but you're not quite as capable as me. So, so you, if you won't mind submitting. No. Three persons, but one in essence, all fully God. And yet within the Godhead, headship and submission takes place all the way from the beginning. It simply never began, it always was, because it has always been seen in the Godhead. Mark Chansky then in his book, Womanly Dominion, continues this way. He says, let's reason together scripturally. Is it denigrating for the Son of God to assume a position of submission under the authority of the Father? Did it degrade his divine person when he said, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me? John 6, verse 38. No. 
The Son's humble submission under the Father's authority is the essence of His praiseworthy glory. Philippians 2 tells us to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and made Himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being made into the likeness of men. For a woman who rejects the mind of the world and puts on the mind of Christ, it is counted a great honor to follow in the submissive footsteps of the servant-hearted Son of God. But there's no more prestigious role in the world than humbly occupying the position and performing the role assigned by one's heavenly Father. This is what it means to be Christ-like. The way of humility is always the road to glory. So, dear Christ-loving women, regardless of what abuse the feminists heap on you, stay at your posts. Regardless of how shrill their screams become, play your position. Something I couldn't echo and commend you for as ladies any higher. You know, the idea of submission, it did not originate with man, it originated with God. And by way of disposition, it is represented in the very character of God and Godhead itself. And ladies, that's why it's so vital that you play your position. Because man, he made us male and female. He created them in the very image of God. And so if we all just try and be man, if we all just try and do one role, we will never truly display to the world the glory of the Godhead. And there's a role men are called to play. And there's a role women are called to play. But if we both just try and become identical, then the Trinity will never be revealed. It will be as if God is just one. No different persons. No distinctions. He's made us in his image to reflect his glory back to him. Equality and worth and value and dignity, but different in roles, just like it is within the Godhead and within marriage. He's very deliberately made it then. That upon the words, I do, the husband will take on the role of head and the wife will take on the role of helper. And together they will display the glories of Christ's relationship with his church, his bride, as he leads her and as she graciously and humbly seeks to follow him. So where did this idea of submission come from? Well, it came from God. So number two, what then is Biblical submission. We'd well, be pleased to know, I think, that submission is mentioned in the New Testament alone over 40 times. This isn't just like one verse, random verse, that we look on and rest our case. Now, over 40 times in the New Testament, submission is mentioned in various different settings. But each and every time, this is what it means. We must get this right. Define this is what submission is. Submission is a voluntary and willing acceptance and disposition to follow the leadership and responsibility of another. Say that again. A voluntary and willing acceptance and disposition to follow the leadership and responsibility of another. My friends, we have to understand man or woman in different settings were all called to do it. Even Australians are called to do it. Listen, 
Claire Smith in God's book, in God's good design. This is what she says. The word submission and all related verbs meaning to submit are often used in the New Testament and in the context of many different types of relationships. So children are, submit to, are to submit to their parents, Luke 2, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Slaves are to submit to their masters, Titus 2, 1 Peter 2. Wives are to submit to their husbands, 1 Corinthians 14, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Titus 2 and 1 Peter 3. And Christians are to submit to those over them in Christian leadership, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Peter 5 and Hebrews 13. We are to submit ourselves to God, James 4. And as part of that Godward submission, we are to submit to governing authorities, Romans 13. Titus 3 and 1 Peter 2. However, this language of submission is not just limited to human relationships. All things have been subjected to and will ultimately submit to Christ. Ephesians 1, Philippians 3 and Hebrews 2 and 1 Peter 3. Demons submit to the rule of Christ. Luke 10. The church is to submit to Christ as her head. Ephesians 5. And when all things have been made subject to him... Christ himself will submit to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15. Do you see it? Submission isn't just talking about the context of husband and wife. In all of life, we're called to submit in various different settings. Where God has ordained a leader or given a responsibility to another, there must be in our hearts for the glory of the Lord a voluntary and willing acceptance and disposition to follow them. Because that's what submission is. And when it comes then to wifely submission, the same is true. What is wifely submission? Well, it is a wife's voluntary and willing acceptance and disposition to follow the leadership and responsibility of her husband. A voluntary and willing, and I would add joyful acceptance and disposition to follow the leadership and the responsibility of her husband. Now, so that we're clear, wifely submission does not mean the following things. You see, when I put this together, I was aware that I'm going to need to explain what it does not mean as much as what I explain what it does mean. Because it's usually in the what it does not mean that the confusion reigns. Wifely submission does not mean that a wife is to be devoid of any independent thoughts. So we're clear. It does not mean that. Men, you may not appreciate this or you may have overstated this, but your wife just simply does not have to agree with you on everything. She doesn't. Not in any way. She can be incredibly submissive to you and not agree with you on most things. That's okay. You know, biblical submission from a wife does not mean that she is devoid of independent thoughts. God has made us as independent beings for the glory of the Lord. And she doesn't have to agree with you. Just because you want to get a Cronites and she wants to go to the shoe barrage and you say, well, I really want to get a Cronites. You say, oh, I'd love to go to the shoe barrage. Doesn't mean she's not being submissive to you. She's just sharing an opinion, sharing an, opi- an independent thought. And that's good for the glory of the Lord always. And if that type of thing bothers you, then I submit to you that what you're displaying towards her is not biblical leadership, but domination. And then offense over tiny little unimportant things. Our wives should have independent thoughts. I would have never wanted to marry somebody that didn't. 
Oh, I want to go here. Oh, okay. After a while, I've been like, do you have any thoughts about anything? I mean, it would be irritating. Wifely submission does not mean that a wife is to be devoid of independent thoughts. Likewise, wifely submission does not mean that a wife is in some ways less intelligent or less competent than her husband. That is a disgrace to even think that. Men and women are made equal in value and worth and dignity and ability. My wife, if you look at our academic qualifications, is way smarter than I am. Fact. So does that mean she should lead the home because she's cleverer? No. Because it's not about ability or capability. It's about created order. It's about what God has called us to do. In the same way in the Godhead, the differences aren't about capabilities or intelligence. He's just aware that in creation it's going to be different. So it is with husband and wife. Wives, you could be way smarter than your husbands. For many of you, I know you are. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have an inclination and disposition to follow him. You don't follow him because of his abilities and capabilities. You will follow him as to the Lord because that's what he's been called to. Wifely submission, likewise, does not mean a wife is unable or forbidden to influence her husband. (laughs) Listen, if you are going to be a good helper to your husband, you are darn well going to need to really try and influence him sometimes. Big time. And you should for the glory of the Lord. You really should. Because here's, here's the thing. Sometimes as husbands, we want to make stupid decisions. Decisions that are just the most stupid thing you've ever heard of. And what we need in that moment is, oh, whatever you say, dear. No, what we need in that moment is a wife that says, listen, I'm not sure this is the best idea. Can we talk about it? And if you're wise in your biblical leadership of your home, men, you will be wanting that. You will be craving that. Let me know what you think. Biblical submission doesn't mean that you're hitting back, that you're not saying and standing firm. I thank God for the way my wife demonstrates and models this in our home. You know, I can think of different times in my life where I was about to do something that was stupid. It's actually weekly. Um, (laughs) That my wife says, listen, listen, I don't think that's a good idea. Here's my favorite moments, though. My favorite moments is when it's not something stupid, but it's just something we're not sure on. Sometimes even we disagree on. And I thank God for moments where my wife will say to me, listen, I don't think this is the best way forward. And I would do it differently. But if that's what you want to do, and that's what you believe God is calling us to do, then I'm behind you 100%. That is a good helper. And for me as a husband, that doesn't cause me to go, oh, okay, I'll just go and do it. It causes me to go, really? Okay, tell me again what you're concerned with. (laughs) I want to know. You need a wife's intelligence. You need a wife's thoughts. You need her strength. I want her to influence me. For me personally, as a man, there is no one on the world that I confide in or look to more for wisdom than my wife. And that's for every area of my life. Whether it be for me personally, whether it be for our home, whether it be for this church, whether it be for the regional stuff that I do. Hey, I even talked to her about sovereign grace, global stuff. I want to know what are your thoughts because I'm going to have to say something, and it might be stupid. What are your thoughts? She is a wonderful helper to me, and for the last 17 years has been a beautiful and wonderful helper. Likewise, wifely submission does not mean that a wife is inferior or weak or lacking in strength. I hate it when people assume that. I submit to you it takes an incredibly godly and strong woman to truly submit. 
Because when she disagrees with where the husband wants to take it, if she's weak, she ain't going to follow. But if she's strong in the Lord, she will stand next to him. Say, I disagree with you. But for the glory of the Lord, I'm with you. That takes straight strength and great courage. Wifey submission does not mean that a wife is to be devoid of any independent thoughts, is some way less intelligent or less competent than a husband, is unable or forbidden to influence a husband, or is inferior or weak or lacking in strength. It doesn't mean any of those things. But what wifely submission does mean is that a wife voluntarily and willingly accepts and is disposed to follow the leadership and God-given responsibility of her husband. As he seeks to lead the home, Paul tells us, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Because he's the head. He's the one that's been given this task. And so use all your gifts and abilities and strength and intelligence to help him as he does for the glory of the Lord. Wifely submission is a wife's voluntary and willing acceptance and disposition to follow the leadership and responsibility of her husband. Now, number three, are there any exceptions to this submission? Because, Dave, I hear you. I hear what you're saying about submission. It's difficult to argue that it's not in Scripture. But I'm quite sure you'd agree with me that knowing my husband, God wouldn't expect me to submit to my husband in my case. Right? Right? I mean, I get the big idea, but you don't know my husband very well. And if you were around my husband, you'd probably say, oh yeah, don't bother in that case. Right? See, maybe your husband is lazy and inconsiderate. And he specializes in watching TV and playing on his iPhone. Maybe your husband is irresponsible with the finances. And as you talk to him about things you would like for the home, he's never got any money, but then he comes walking back in with JB Hi-Fi with a new 55-inch TV that apparently he's found money for. But time and time again, you're aware we haven't got enough money to eat. Maybe your husband just refuses to discipline and take a lead with the children. And even though you've asked him many times, he does not listen. He's still not leading. He's still not disciplining the children. Maybe your husband across the board is just a really poor leader of you. Maybe he didn't grow up himself with a dad who really led. And so he still doesn't really know what he's doing. And actually, God's just made you way more intelligent and gifted and more abilities than him. So you don't expect me to submit to him, right? Or maybe your husband is an unbeliever. He doesn't know Jesus. He's not even interested in Jesus. Don't have to submit to him, right? Ladies, listen, this is the word of God to you. This isn't a Davism. This isn't a sovereign gracism. This is God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself, its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husband. Claire Smith, in her book, God's Good Good Design, 
very sensitively unpacks it this way. I think it's so helpful. She says, Paul knew that no husband would be perfect. And God, whose word this is, knows it even more. Yet even so, you will notice that the submission required of a wife is not conditional on her husband getting it right. The passage does not say, Wives, submit to your own husbands when they love you or when you think they deserve it. It does not say, When they do their bit, then and only then you do yours. No. The only fine print in this command to submit is as to the Lord and in everything. See, wives, listen to me carefully. There is no excuse for your husband not to be leading you. There is none. And if they are not leading you, I am deeply sorry about that. And if there is any way that we can help you as a pastoral team, you have my full attention. And I deeply respect you where your husband is not leading for you to, rem- to remain for the glory of the Lord. There is no excuse at all for your husband not to be leading you. But you must understand the word of God to you. And it's clear that unless there is a clear issue of sin at stake, then you are called by God in Scripture for the glory of God to submit to your husbands. And so, are there any exceptions to this submission? Well, well, yes. Because quite clearly, our submission as wives is to the Lord. And so the exception is if there is a clear issue of sin at stake, then we are called not to follow because your submission to your husband is as to the Lord. And so, if a husband is leading his wife into sin, that is a time to not follow. If he wants her to be sexually immoral, or to cheat on her taxes, or to lie, or to steal, or to neglect or abuse her children, or to forsake and have nothing to do with Christ. If a husband is seeking to lead his wife directly into something that cuts across her attention to Jesus as her king, then that is a time to say, no, I can't. Because my life isn't my own, and I want to follow you as my head, but I have a greater head, and his name is Jesus. And so I can't follow you in this. If a husband is leading his wife into sin, that is a time to not follow. Likewise, if a husband is sinfully abusing his wife, which is utterly, utterly abhorrent. If a wife is being physically abused or sexually abused or psychologically abused or financially abused, that is a time to not follow. And ladies, I want you to understand, if you are being physically or sexually abused by your husband, that is a time to call the police and call your pastors and leave your husband with speed. And you would have, once again, my full attention and the full support of this pastoral team to deal with your husband appropriately. 
Abuse is a clear violation of Scripture and a clear violation of the fact that this bride next to you is your greatest treasure outside of Christ and she is an equal with you in value and worth and dignity before the Lord. So how dare you dominate her like that? You're being physically or sexually abused. It is time to flee and get help. Call me. I would want to help you and call the police. But ladies, you must understand, because that happens in society, we cannot therefore just tear out pieces of Scripture and be away with it. Sadly, there are many fathers that abuse their kids. It is horrendous. But that doesn't make every father wrong as he tries to lead his home. Husbands are called to be the head of their homes. And where they're doing it wrong, and it's not as to the Lord, then there is a time to stand up to that and pay attention and leave if abuse is in the case. But aside from there being a clear issue of sin at stake, you are called for the glory of God God to follow your husband. Now listen, that does not mean then that if there's a sin pattern in his life, you can't in humility challenge it and press on it. I I suggest that you do. I receive more encouragement of my wife than anybody else, but I probably receive more correction at different times of my wife than anybody else. Because there's times when I'm sinning and I need her help. But if as a wife you're going to wait until your husband stops sinning to ever follow him, you will never follow him. Because we ain't Jesus. We're just trying to be. We're trying to do our best. But we're going to fail at different times. And so ladies, unless there is a clear issue of sin at stake, then you are called by God in Scripture for his glory to submit to your husbands. And listen, I would be a poor pastor, a poor pastor to teach you any other way. Why? Because this is clearly what God's word teaches And it's not about what I think. It's about what God says. And secondarily, if I was to teach you any other way, I would be robbing you and your husband of the dynamic and powerful force that your submission can have on his life. See, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. This is what he says. Pay attention. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What an amazing verse. See, if you're here today and you are married to an unbelieving husband, I think that verse alone should give you hope. Because you may have shared the gospel with him a thousand times, you may have invited him to church a thousand times, maybe he's come, maybe he hasn't. But what Peter's talking about here is a lifestyle, a submission to a husband that will enable you to win him without even a word. As he looks at your conduct, he sees something that is attractive. If you're married to a believer, somebody who does love the Lord, and yet he's not doing a great job of leading your home. Listen, I think this verse gives you hope as well. Because it clearly claims that if you are subject to your own husbands, if you show a disposition to follow him, even if he's not obeying the word, then by the grace of God and for the glory of God, he can be won even without a word through your example. 
Elizabeth George eloquently expresses it this way. She says, Our submission to our husbands, whether or not he is a Christian, whether or not he is obeying God, preaches a lovelier and more powerful sermon than our mouths ever could. Isn't that beautiful? The wife has an opportunity to win her husband's heart and affections to the Lord without even a word, a more powerful sermon through her example. And so are there any exceptions to following a husband? Yes, without doubt. Your following is ultimately as to the Lord. And so where it contravenes scripture or you're being abused, you don't respond. But aside from that, wives, you are called by God to submit to your husbands, and that's a good thing. Because in the Godhead, we see authority and submission. And in Christ and the church, that which we're meant to reveal through our marriages, the church isn't equally, that Christ isn't equally submitting to the church, is he? No, the church submits to Christ. And that's the picture we're called to demonstrate. And for the glory of the Lord, you wield a powerful and dynamic force when you do it. So number four, final question. How then can a godly wife cultivate a submissive heart towards their husband? How can she do it? Assuming by the grace of God that you ladies want to do this, assuming that by the grace of God this is something you want to develop. Listen, having observed my my wife for the last 17 years, having read a lot of books on this, Here's four things that I think you can do to help cultivate a submissive heart towards your husband. Number one, she can pray and cry out to God, the perfect man and the perfect groom. Listen, submission is hard in any context. And for a wife to a husband, it is difficult. But you have a better groom who will help you each and every step of the way. Ephesians 4 tells us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, a submissive heart is not the natural disposition of anybody. We have a profoundly independent heart that wants to be king. We all need the Lord. And wives, as you seek to develop a submissive heart towards your husband, you need to cry out to him, ask him for help, and he will help you. So the first way she can cultivate a submissive heart is to pray and cry out to God. Secondarily, she can regularly meditate on the greatness and sovereignty of God. And this is so important. See, Carolyn Mahaney in in her book, Feminine Appeal, says it this way. She says, Submission, in its simplest form, is trust in God, who is completely trustworthy. He is our loving Father, who controls every detail of our lives, past, present, and future. He lavishes us with goodness and blessing, And he measures our pain and adversity, all for our good and his glory. The question we must answer then is, am I prepared to trust God enough to lead my husband to lead me? As Susan Hunt says, the true woman is not afraid to place herself in a position of submission. 
She does not have to grasp. She does not have to control. Her fear dissolves in the light of God's covenant promise to be her God and to live within her. Submission, then, is simply a demonstration of her confidence in the sovereign power of the Lord God. Isn't that wonderful? Submission, then, to your husband is as to the Lord. And so submission in its simplest form is trust in God. And the big question, then, that every wife has to work through is, am I prepared to trust God enough to lead my husband to lead me? It's not actually a confidence in your husband issue. It's a confidence in God issue. And the only way you can feed your confidence in God is by spending time with God and studying him in his majesty and greatness and sovereignty and aware that ultimately he is in control of it all. And so when you look back at your husband's face and you think, how do I submit to him? You understand that before the Lord there is one greater behind him that's leading you all the time. And it's him ultimately then that you're actually submitting to. So how can she cultivate? Well, number two, she can regularly meditate on the greatness and sovereignty of God. Number three, she can find and seek to learn from godly role models. It's one of the things I love about Titus 2. Not only the ministry we have in this church, but Titus 2 itself, you know, in the Bible, Titus 2. Because clearly in Titus 2, we have older women, more mature women, training younger women in different character qualities. My friends, in a culture that really doesn't like this at all, I submit to you as ladies, you desperately need godly role models in your life. So find them. Locate them. Look around. Sign up to be a part of Titus 2 groups. Look around at your group leader. Look around at your assistant group leader. Locate godly women in your life and then talk to them. How have you done this? Why do you think this? Why do you do this? Involve them in your lives. It will help you cultivate a submissive heart to your husband as well. And number four, she can do all she can to show ongoing respect to her husband. See, in verse 33, Paul says this, it says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What you see there then is the husband's role is to be characterized by love. He's called to lay his life down for his wife, to love her. And the wife's role is to be characterized by respect. That's what characterizes her role, that I respect you. And ladies, I don't want to teach you then how to do something that I am not having to do myself. I don't have to respect my husband. Praise God, I haven't got one. Otherwise, you'd be asking serious questions. But as a husband, here's what I want to encourage you by way of showing respect to him. From one man to a bunch of women, let me help you. Because there are clear ways that I think you can show respect to your husband. First of all, motivated by a biblical view of his role, encourage him in his role. Most husbands I meet, 
when you encounter them, can give you a list of 20 things that they need to change in, and yet are completely unaware of what God is doing well in their lives and how they are remotely responding well as a leader in their home. You need to help them with that. One of the ways you can help as a helper is by helping them see, listen, I thank God for the way you lead me in this way and this way and this way. Thank you. Because without you doing that, they are more often than not completely unaware of it. And what that causes in a man is a desire to throw in the towel because they just think, I'm rubbish anyway, I may as well not bother. One of the ways you can help them then and show them respect is by motivated by a biblical view of their role, encourage them. Also motivated by a biblical view of his role, follow him. There's no greater respect you can show to your husband than by actually submitting to him. By realizing you are the head of my home. And so I want to follow you. Nothing respects him more, to be quite frank, than that. And thirdly, motivated by a biblical view of his role, Allow him then the privilege of being the head of your home, of pastoring you and actually leading you. See, in some ways, there's nothing more dishonoring or disrespectful to a man than when he discovers that you've chatted to everybody you've ever met about a certain issue and yet you haven't once come to think, maybe I need to speak to my pastor, my husband about this. I need his thoughts. Hey, can we create some time? Because I want to know what you think about this. This is going on my heart. Help me. This is going on in my life. What do you think? Nothing honors him more and respects him more by allowing him to actually be the pastor to you that he's called to be as the head of your home. So ladies, just a few questions then to finish. I'm aware that your husband's got given some questions to you last week. I hope he's provided a time. If not, it's going to be an interesting car trip home. But Here's some questions I want to encourage for you ask your husband so that you start to lean on him as your head and your leader. Number one, if you knew I wouldn't become angry nor offended, how would you honestly evaluate my submission to and support of your leadership? If you knew I wouldn't get mad, if you knew I wouldn't be offended, if you don't say those words, the guy's never going to say nothing because he doesn't want it to be a long week, you know. If you knew I wouldn't become angry, you knew I wouldn't be offended, how would you honestly evaluate my submission to and support of your leadership? Number two, what is one specific way I can grow in my support of your leadership? What's one specific way that I can grow in this for the glory of the Lord? Number three, what are specific things that I could do that would communicate my genuine respect for you? What are just some of the things that I could genuinely do to show my genuine respect for you? You know, folks, as men and women and as husbands and wives alike, we have a high and holy calling on our lives. But I would be lying to you if I was to say that this is going to be super easy to put into practice. It's not. We live in response to Genesis chapter 3. The fall has occurred. Sin is in our hearts. It is going to be a challenge. It's going to be difficult. But by the grace of God and for the glory of God, the Holy Spirit now lives in our hearts as well. 
And he's called us to a high and holy calling to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. And when it comes to relationships then, he's outlining for us very clearly, it's Genesis 1 and 2 for us. And so husbands are called to lead their homes, to lay their lives down for their wives. And wives are called to help their husband, to use their gifts and strengths and abilities and intelligence to help him and follow him in any way that they can and to do so in a submissive way. And in doing that, we'll be revealing the Godhead. And in doing that, we'll be revealing Christ and his glorious relationship with the church. So my friends, by the grace of God then and for his glory, would this be our story, amen? Would this be the men and women we are? And by the grace of God and for his glory, would this be our lives? So I'm going to pray for you. We're not going to sing. Otherwise, there's going to be no time for lunch. I'm going to pray for you. Let's stand together. Lord, I thank you for the way you care for us as your children. Lord, we don't stand here in this moment primarily as husband or wife or single or married. We stand here in this moment primarily as your sons and daughters. That's our identity. Lord, I thank you then for the way you care for us and lead us as a faithful shepherd. Lord, you are the good shepherd in, in a culture that despises this. Lord, would we be willing to stand firm on your truth? Like the greats of old that says, Here I stand. I can do no other. Lord, would we be men and women in our distinct and different roles that say the same, Here I stand. I can do no other. And would it be used for your glory, Lord? And would you be pleased in us as we seek to delight ourselves in you? For your glory, Lord. Amen. My friends, thank you for listening. Have a good week. Um, And please come back next week because Eric's speaking. All right, have a good week.